Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, November 24th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 46, verses 1 to 24. As his vision continues, Ezekiel learns more about the worship life of the people of God in the new temple. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Stephen Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Benton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Good to be back. Pastor Preuss, I've, the last several episodes that we've been going through this section of Ezekiel, I've started with this quote from Dr. Hummel in his commentary. He, he begins this section in Ezekiel, and he says, From almost any perspective, these chapters are among the most formidable and challenging in the entire Bible. So, Pastor Preuss, with such a formidable text in front of us, how are we going to approach it so that we can find use for it and it benefits our faith as Christians? Yeah, very carefully is is the first (laughs) answer. Uh, There's a lot here to dig into. There's stuff you can uh, kind of of go over and and, and miss if you're not careful, and and a lot that's going to point us to Christ. So, I hope it can be of great benefit to us to maybe sharpen our our minds on this today by by focusing on how this new temple points us to Christ in in many ways uh, in the Old Testament. You know, oftentimes the Old Testament language can confuse us. And so uh, I think we can bring some clarity to that today. So we're jumping into Ezekiel 46. In terms of where we are in the book of Ezekiel, where have we been? What has he seen? What do we need to know going into this chapter? Yeah, so the context here, this section is really Ezekiel 40 to 48. Uh, It's just full of symbolism. So uh, you've got this new temple, and we know that God had already promised uh, to save his people from captivity in Babylon. Uh, And so that's something that uh, we've already heard about. But in this section, he is describing this greater salvation that he is giving through his promised Christ. And so all of the, the symbolism is going to be pointing forward to Christ and his, his church. Now, Ezekiel's already given a tour of the temple at this point. It's exacting standards. He told us that all the nations will flow into God's presence there. Uh, and this temple is so holy that only the sons of Zadok can approach and serve in it. Ezekiel sees the glory of the God of Israel enter the east entrance of the new temple uh, from the east and had departed from there too. And so with all of that, God then gives Levitical standards for his priests in the temple and some new regulations too. And he also gives the Israelites a prince, uh, but not a king, uh, since Israel's king is the heavenly father and many of the other kings have been have been worthless. Uh, and then we just heard in, in chapter 45 about the major festivals, which included the Passover and how that would relate to Christ and his church. Uh, And the section for today, we begin by hearing about the daily and monthly minor festivals uh, in order to uh, relate that to uh, 
the New Testament church in Christ himself. Yeah, the, the connection between this chapter and the previous is a connection of worship. There, there is a chapter break, but in, in some sense, it's, it's a very much a continuation of what we were just hearing in terms of the worship life in this new temple. One, one thing you said, Pastor Price, that I want to talk a little bit more about in terms of what this section is. I think you said it's, it's full of symbolism. How do we, how do we know that, that this is a, this text is meant to be interpreted that way, that this isn't something that was supposed to be built or that we should still be seeking to build? What are the, the clues within the text? How, how do we know that this is a, that's meant to be taken this way? Yeah, well, we have uh, a, a few different clues here. And uh, the first thing I'll talk about is is the prince himself that we'll, we'll end up talking about. And uh, that he is is really focused on in in this section uh, as having the same type of role as the Davidic Messiah that was already mentioned in in chapters 34 and 37. And so uh, we'll be able to talk a little bit more about that as we're, we're reading through the text. But uh, we, we know that a lot of people have taken this uh, literally this section of of uh, the new temple and are waiting to you know rebuild a temple when when christ returns uh and so it's good for us to to as we go through this text to really focus upon some of these symbolic uh the symbolic nature of everything so that we're not uh we're not expecting to have some physical uh, temple itself let's go ahead and, and start reading then again we're in ezekiel chapter 46 this morning thus says the lord god the gate of the inner court that faces east shall be shut on the six working days, but on the Sabbath day it shall be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from outside, and shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priests shall offer his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering with the ram shall be an ephah, and the grain offering with the lambs shall be as much as he is able, together with a hin of oil to each ephah. On the day of the new moon he shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and six lambs and a ram, which shall be without blemish. As a grain offering, he shall provide an ephah with the bull and an ephah with the ram, and with the lambs as much as he is able, together with a hen of oil to each ephah. When the prince enters, he shall enter by the vestibule of the gate, and he shall go out by the same way. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feasts, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate, and he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by way of the gate by which he entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. When they enter, the prince shall enter with them, and when they go out, he shall go out. At the feasts and the appointed festivals, the grain offering with a young bull shall be an ephah, and with a ram an ephah, and with the lambs as much as one is able to give, together with a hin of oil to, be, to an ephah. When the prince provides a freewill offering, either a burnt offering or peace offerings as a freewill offering to the Lord, the gate facing east shall be opened for him, and he shall offer his burnt offering or his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out, and after he has gone out, the gate shall be shut. You shall provide a lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it. 
and you shall provide a grain offering with it morning by morning, one-sixth of an ephah, and one-third of a hin of oil to moisten the flour, as a grain offering to the Lord. This is a perpetual statute. Thus the lamb and the meal offering and the oil shall be provided morning by morning for a regular burnt offering. I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 15 of chapter 46 here in Ezekiel. So, Pastor Price, you've mentioned him already. The The prince shows up in this chapter again. He's been prominent in the previous two chapters. Tell us again, who is this prince and, and what's his role that we're starting to see here? Yeah, and I, I think this helps us with the symbolism is that he he has the same duties as the Davidic Messiah that's mentioned in chapters 34 and 37. And uh, we know that since he can enter the same eastern gateway uh, through which the Lord himself has passed, he's he's no ordinary man. This isn't just anybody. Uh, and we take this to be God's son, Jesus Christ. Um, and the, the reason we, we can see that is that the, the prince is, while he's not uh, entering straight in like the Lord does, uh, he has to take this kind of circular route to enter the closed east gate. Um, we see that he is distinct from the Lord and yet has has similarities with him. And, and the reason he's distinct is because uh, the prince's divine nature, so you know, God's son's divine nature, is not the focus here. But rather, what's really the focus here is his royal and priestly position. And it's very understated. It's brought out in these Old Testament terms because... Uh, the New Testament fulfillment has, has not yet come, and so we're still using these Old Testament ways of speaking. So the New Testament fulfillment in Christ Jesus is clear because of his priestly sacrificial role. We see that in Revelation especially, and uh, John the Baptist says it too, the Lamb of God. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, and then in the references to the, the throne of God and of the Lamb in Revelation 22, we also see that there is a um, a fulfillment there in this, this uh, kingly, our princely kind of royal uh, way in which our, our Lord presents himself. Uh, so this section, we will kind of be taking it this way, uh, is, it points to Christ's offices of priest and king, which are two of his three major offices, the other one being prophet. And so the prince himself is, is someone that, while he, he doesn't seem to be the exact same, kind of like the way we see the Father and the Spirit are not, the same as as the son they're, they're distinct persons so the prince here and it'll become clearer he's acting on behalf of the people as a priest and he's he's identifying with them he's there's there's a lot there that we're going to be able to get into about how he is is representing them before um with the sacrifices uh, before the lord in the temple so there's going to be a lot of uh ways for us to see the prince uh as as christ himself and see how this rather confusing new temple actually gives us a whole lot of, of great comfort. Yeah, I agreed. I, the, and I think it is important, as you pointed out, to, to keep in mind that Ezekiel is speaking and he's being shown things here in an Old Testament frame of reference, so that when maybe, you know, we see something with this prince that we say, well, that doesn't seem to match up quite with Christ and what we've seen in the New Testament, that's okay. Because Ezekiel is is seeing it again in, in the terms that he's going to be familiar with, that those exiles there in Babylon are going to be familiar with. He's still seeing that that shadow, even as the reality is is being revealed more and more. And I, I mean, the more I read through this section of Ezekiel, the more that that becomes clear. And I appreciate the way that that 
the Lord in this Old Testament way communicates New Testament realities. And, and you and I have the benefit of, of having seen the whole picture so that this does really strengthen our faith in Christ, even, even as there are some difficult details to, to discern sometimes. So with, with that in mind, Pastor Preuss, we're talking again about the worship life here in this new temple. And the, the main things that we're going to be talking about are the Sabbath day and then the new moon. What are those two observances for the people of Israel? Yeah, so these these two observances are going to be uh, obviously a big big deal. We know what the Sabbath is, being the the day in which uh, the people are to to rest uh, from their labors that the Lord might might uh, work on them. And so uh, the Sabbath is something that we ourselves have have a lot of of understanding with. Um, now, with with the new moon, we might not know quite as much, but it'll become clearer as we we go through it. Uh, these are these are uh, not the major festivals that we hear about, like the uh, Passover in the in the previous section. But uh, to begin with, uh, while Ezekiel is describing the worship in terms of the Old Testament, you know, the Sabbath and the new moon, what we what we really want to talk about here is that these are simply shadows of what was to come, Christ Himself. And so, you know, whenever we are teaching on the third commandment, uh, we always have to point out that that Christ is our Sabbath rest, that, you know, when he died and rose again, he said to his disciples, the first words out of his mouth were peace uh, be with you. And this is the rest that he has won through his his wounds, through what he did on the cross. And so what this entire section is really pointing forward to is his fulfillment of the the Sabbath and the new moon. And uh, Luther says this, he says, therefore, this building of Ezekiel is not to be understood to mean a physical building, but like the chariot at the beginning in chapter one. So this building at the end is nothing else than the kingdom of Christ, the holy church or Christendom here on earth until the last day. And so it is a, uh, a helpful thing for us to see why why the Sabbath, uh, because the Sabbath is is how we uh, receive the rest that that only God can give. You mentioned earlier the gate that the prince uses to enter. That features pretty prominently here. So take us through what Ezekiel sees happening. What's the prince's role? What's the role of the priest? What's happening? And then again, what is that teaching us as Christians? Yeah, the inner eastern gate shall be opened, we're told, until evening on the Sabbath and new moon, but not on the other days. On the other days, they're, they're to remain closed. And uh, the prince is given... Uh, supervisory role over the sacrifices here and he represents the people before before the lord uh, and now he is to be present in the gateway when the priests are offering the sacrifices um, that the prince will actually provide the sacrifices from the people we find that out in chapter 45. now he's not in the inner court uh, but he's at the gateway and so the prince could observe all that was happening during the sacrifice. So he'd see the priest uh, sacrificing and, and, and observe the whole thing. But the key thing to understand about his role here is that he's not just an observer. He's not just watching all of this. There's something going on beyond that as he is, is standing there. He actually uh, isn't, isn't completely uh, standing. <laughs> he's, he leads the worship. He prostrates at the threshold of the gate and the people also then do the same thing, just like the prince before the Lord on, on these specific days. And so the prince is, is taking uh, a kind of a vicarious role here. He's approaching God 
more closely than the people can, right? And he's he's there witnessing everything. And he's also representing them then before the Lord. And his his worship is is really showing his his mediation that makes them able to worship the Lord. And this is such a wonderful uh, way to present Christ himself, who is is the one who represents us. So, you know, we talk about how he's the prince and not the king. Well, as the prince, he, he comes as our prince of peace. He's the one who comes in order to represent us, sinful humanity, before God and to be our mediator. And so when we see this, uh, him standing right there, and uh, we might not quite understand it right away. Well, why isn't he the sacrifice? I thought he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, he is. But here he's he's identifying with us and he's taking on this vicarious role uh, and approaching God to represent these people before the Lord and really to, to, to show them also what it is to worship the Lord. You know, the two go together. And we, we today, you know, see that within our own churches where the pastor is is showing the people how he is. Uh, he's actually uh, showing them how they are to worship as he himself is worshiping. And you know, while he himself is not Christ, he represents Christ and presents Christ before the people and, and uh, it shows his mediation for them. So there's a lot of comparisons that you can get just from this little bit of information. You know, you mentioned, you know, he's, at least as it's pictured here in Ezekiel 46, he, the prince, is not the sacrifice himself. But I do think when you think about how the book of Revelation picks up a lot of the images that come from Ezekiel, you see that as it's the Lamb of God who is, you know, the Lamb who was slain. He's the one who ascends the throne. He's the one who takes the scroll who is worthy to open its seals. I mean, I, I, I think... What, what Ezekiel sees here in this Old Testament imagery, St. John sees in all of its fullness in the book of Revelation, and you see how these, again, what, what is still at least somewhat in shadows in the book of Ezekiel is revealed in its fullness for us in the New Testament to our great benefit. I, and I don't you tell me what you think, Pastor Preuss, but as you were talking in, in terms of like Jesus being the mediator, my mind started to go to the ascension of our Lord and how he's ascended to the Father's right hand. I, I, I think there's some connections that we could make there as to what it means that Jesus is our, our ascended king prince. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we think about the mediation of Christ, we think about it both on the cross and then uh, at the right hand of, of the Father after his ascension. On the cross, he is once and for all making atonement for our sins and, and acting as our mediator there through his blood. But then as he is risen and ascended, he now forever pleads for us uh, as as within the church. And so what what's really going on in the church is, is the proclamation of the reality that is in heaven. At God's right hand, he is pleading for us, speaking about how his wounds make us whole and forgiven. And, and so too, we're proclaiming that in, in the church. And so uh, the ascension is essential when it comes to understanding that he has, he has filled all things. He, he's got all things under his feet for the sake of his church uh, in order to mediate for them and to be their intercessor. And, and because of that, then we have the confidence to go through to the throne of God through Jesus. Uh, think through the, the book of Hebrews and how because Jesus has ascended, he is the one, he's, he's got those wounds, he's pleading, you know, he's pleading for us at the Father's right hand. We go as a part of that, you know, again, that, that thought of the confidence in worship. We can go to the Father 
with that boldness as dear children, because Jesus is there pleading our case, that that green, and I think you, I mean, you see that at least in part in Ezekiel with the way that the people are a part of this worship too. This is, I, I'm trying to think, I, I think this is really the first time in the this section of Ezekiel where the rest of the people beyond the prince, the priests, and the Levites, suddenly now you've got the people, the land participating in worship here. Again, that that vicarious, how is it that these people are able to do this? They're coming through this prince, just like we're able to worship by coming through Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a it's such a beautiful way of of showing how Christ is in solidarity with us. You know, he he is one with with the Father. And, and here he is identifying with us and bringing us in. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the rest of this chapter, uh, that this is very much something that you can find within this chapter is, is how the prince is uh, a, a fitting name that our Lord has chosen to, to speak of uh, our Lord Jesus, because he, he really is the one who is uh, going to come here to earth in order to identify with us and and present us before his father who is the only true king right uh, and so there are times when christ is more appropriately talked about as as the prince um who, who identifies with us so yeah it's, it's very helpful tell us more about the actual offerings that, that the prince gives in verses four and following we hear about a burnt offering and a grain offering and again sabbath and new moons both tell us uh, again about some of the details there yeah, so I mean, we we talked about the Sabbath and how this is this is something that uh, we all know about with the the rest that we have weekly. Um, in Christ is is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath, which was a requirement on Saturday for them to rest. Uh, the new moon was a monthly thing, uh, where the Lord was uh, every month showing Himself to be the one who renews uh, them. And so, uh, when you look at the Old Testament requirements for the Sabbath, uh, in in this section, uh, you hear about uh, how it is actually uh, different than that was, which was required in in the Torah, in in the uh, first five books of the the Old Testament there in, in Numbers. So the requirements for the Sabbath are actually less than the the pilgrimage festivals, which we heard about in chapter 45, but they're they're more than what the Torah required. Uh, so that's that's quite a little bit different. Uh, and we're going to talk more about that too at, toward the end here, that, that, that there's a reason for this, uh, why they're different and why they're, they're not quite exactly the, the, the same. And then the, the second thing we think about is the requirements for the new moon festivals. Uh, they're much less than what was actually commanded in the Torah. So what this all means, to be honest, I, I'm not exactly sure at this point, except for that you, we know that there are alterations and there are just abandonments of, of certain things that are mentioned there. And we see this throughout this whole section, uh, that it's not exactly the same. But I think that points forward to something that we do know, and that is that there is going to be a, a sacrifice that that is you know, singular and once and for all. And so we'll, we'll be able to talk about that a little bit more uh, as we continue to go on. One of the the points that we made in the the previous show in chapter forty five, which was dealing with more of the major festivals, you mentioned that earlier, is just the the fact that the temple is being used is significant. When you when you think about the history of God's people, sometimes the temple went it seems without much use at all. You get these really 
just frightening notices at some point that they hadn't celebrated the Passover in years at a time. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, think about the abuses that were happening in the temple as well. Just the fact that that the Lord is providing for a, a space for worship that's not just a space to sit there, but is something to be used. And again, not just at the major, you know, big feasts of the year, but on a weekly basis and a monthly basis in this chapter, that too is a, a I think a very important and comforting aspect to see this temple being put to use. Yeah, absolutely. What hope we have uh, and what hope they had back then to hear this, that this would be a, a thriving time. And, you know, that's something to really talk about right now. You know, the church is so many people talk about the church shrinking, right? Because there, there are so many churches shrinking and, you know, the church never shrinks uh, because the church, as we celebrate on all saints day, we are reminded that the church is one and that those in, in heaven, uh, they're not shrinking. The church is ever, it's ever growing. And, and so as, as we continue to make disciples of all nations and, and feed uh, Christ's lambs, uh, there is a busyness going on in the church. It's, it's, it's alive and it's active. And that's, this is a description of the new Testament of the, of the, the temple that that Christ builds, uh, his body it, itself, and and so I think that there is here a lot of hope that you know you talk about how the, so many had abandoned it, and that's really quite a theme in Ezekiel and and throughout the prophets, uh, and and we see that with king after king and people after people rejecting the Lord, not doing what He told them to do, and it's it, it's a really a part of the hope within Ezekiel uh, to see that this is a, a temple that is being used. And uh, there's some other uh, portions we're going to talk about here in just a little bit about uh, the inheritance of the prince's property too, where this probably wasn't going on where they were celebrating the year of Jubilee either. It's not like these people were really excited about getting rid of their land and slaves and everything else. Um, but that this is actually going to happen the way God wants it to happen. In, in the New Testament times is, is, a, is a great comfort and hope. Well, I think, you know, I mean, what you're saying there about the way that this comes to us today and that the, there's this maybe the, the sky is falling kind of attitude sometimes, the church is shrinking, oh no. Think about the people that Ezekiel is given to preach to. He's preaching to people in exile who they know the temple's been destroyed. They saw it before it was destroyed. They left and they know when they go home, it's not going to be there. What what a comfort to, to have this vision you know, that there is going to be a temple, that the worship of God is going to happen. And and again, for us as well, when you think about the way that the New Testament talks about our lives as Christians, as, as one of exile, to know that even when when what we see with our eyes, you know, looks pretty pretty bleak, we have a vision like this from Ezekiel, and then like you said, that, that vision that's there in, in Revelation 7 that you hear on All Saints Day, I mean, what what comfort and hope there is for for Christians to have something like that to hold on to in the midst of our lives in exile right now? Yeah, it really is. And it's I think that there are a lot of Christians right now who are becoming kind of cynical and and pessimistic. And we need to read our scripture and we need to be in the word because there is so much here that does encourage us. Our future is bright. Uh, You can look at it according to only your earthly uh, situation. Or you could look at it according to the promises of our Lord. And the promises of our Lord tell us not to lose hope, but to have great hope even in the midst of our trials. 
And we're going to keep looking at those promises of the Lord here in Ezekiel chapter 46, but we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Stephen Preuss this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, November 24th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 46, verses 1 to 24 with Pastor Stephen Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Benton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we're looking at the worship life of this new temple, and the people of the land are involved. The prince is there in a vicarious role. He is the, the way in which the people come and be a part of this worship. We're told a little bit about their movements as well in verses 9 and following. The people of the land, depending on which gate they go in, they they leave a different way. What What's, that, what's the picture there, and, and why is that important? Yeah, yeah. So they've got more regulations uh, for worship as the people of the land come. And when they exit, they actually must do so through the opposite gate from the one they entered. So this is going to take a a whole lot longer than just turning around and going back the way you came in. And so uh, there are a couple of reasons we should think about that. I mean, first of all, would be, I suppose, crowd control. Anybody who's trying to go against the grain as these people are going one way would it would certainly cause some mischief and chaos and God is the God of order. So we should understand that, but there's a little bit more to it than that. And, and that is that it is actually, it's an offensive thing to turn around in the Lord's presence and to turn your back on him. We hear about that in chapter eight. Uh, and so that they are exiting that way uh, in, in, in taking a very inconvenient route. Um, it, there's something theologically significant about that, that they not show dishonor to the Lord in his presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also uh, the fact that the prince enters with them is quite a little nugget of, of uh, gospel beauty here because it shows uh, his solidarity with the people, just as Christ is in solidarity with us. And so he he leads them uh, you know, in the worship and in the bowing down and, and now here he is, he's leading them and with them again, showing that he, he is with the people and he identifies with the people. He is, he is uh, representing them here in the temple. Hmm. We, we talked in previous episodes about how the Lord, in his holiness, he wants his holiness to benefit his people rather than consume them. And, and seeing the prince's role there in verse 10, I think, is, is just a marvelous reminder of one way that the Lord does that. He, he provides for his prince to enter with them and to leave with them. The prince is, I mean, we think of, and if you combine that as well with the, the prince's role in providing for the sacrifices and, and the atonement that happens through the sacrifices, again, I mean, I think the connection to Jesus is clear that that for us to you know, receive God's holiness in a beneficial way rather than a way that will consume us in our utter sinfulness, that can only happen when we enter with Christ, the Holy One. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's, 
it's such a, a great little way of talking about it that he's that he's with them. I mean, how many of us find such great comfort when we know who Jesus is as our our uh, mediator and and the one who's made atonement for our sins to know that he is with us, and it's a great comfort. So uh, there it is again uh, here in Ezekiel 46. So we've been talking about the new moons, the Sabbaths, which are regular things, feasts and appointed festivals in verse 11. But then in verse 12, there's mention of the prince providing a free will offering. It sounds like perhaps not something that's done with the same, you know, every single week regularity. But what what is this free will offering? Yeah, it, it's this spontaneous offering that's, that's given um, without any specific... Uh, mandatory rules. Uh, it's 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 limited to burnt offerings and peace offerings, but uh, these are things that can be given any day of the week, uh, and and then the the gate would be closed immediately, or it's not left open until evening, like for the Sabbaths and the new moons. Um, and those peace offerings are are what are what we might call communion offerings, and so involved a communal a communal meal. And so there's this desire then, and we'll get back to this at the end when we talk about the sacrificial kitchens that end out the chapter, but there's this desire of, of the prince and of the Lord himself to eat with his people, a theme that we see uh, throughout Scripture. In verses 13 and following, we go through more regular offerings. This one is, is to happen morning by morning. What, what's happening verses 13 through 15? Well, the Lord tells the prince to sacrifice just like the Torah does in Numbers 28, uh, except he does not mention evening, but just every morning. So usually you'd hear morning and evening, you know, in the sacrifices that they would make. But but here it's it's just every morning. So it's a little different throughout this section. These these chapters of 40 to 48, uh, we hear the various uh, rites of the of the Torah uh, condensed or modified or just kind of left out entirely. And if we take this to mean that God is is limiting the sacrifices, um, this would kind of urge us on toward that that once and for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God, which is the complete and, and singular sacrifice that fulfilled all the types of the Old Testament. So uh, it, it is limiting it, it seems. Uh, throughout this section in order to kind of push us forward to that that fulfillment of Christ. And so then when it says in this section that this is a perpetual state, uh, this means that it's 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 going to last until the fulfillment in Christ arrives. And so um, it's just a reminder to us that, that Christ is, uh, the, or really to the people back then, that this is going to continue until all things come to an end uh, when the end of the age comes. Uh, and Christ, Christ brings us into this this new, new creation. So, just to to make that point again, because I think you you brought this up when when there are differences between say what's in Ezekiel and what's in the Torah of Moses, it's not that that God you know somehow forgot or or not even necessarily that God is changing his mind but rather that God is pointing forward to the fulfillment in Christ, that, that when we see the, the differences, that's meant to remind us that what was given in the Torah of Moses was always meant to be a shadow pointing to a reality, just like what's in Ezekiel is meant to be a shadow pointing to that reality. It, those differences shouldn't, like, they shouldn't make us think that somehow the scriptures are wrong, but rather they should make us think they're pointing us forward to Christ as the fulfillment. 
Exactly. It's an, it's anticipating it. And, you know, to, to think that these God gave the Old Testament sacrifices uh, just for their own sake is to miss the entire point of why they were given. They were always given to anticipate that which was to come. And so when he, uh, I think it's, it's a rather brilliant thing to leave out things. Uh, you can see how people might get a little, those who actually knew what was going on, if you're condensing it or modifying it or leaving it out entirely, it might, might make people a little uncomfortable. But what it's, it's serving as is a, a way to say, well, why would, why would this happen? Why, why would you condense any of this or modify it or leave it out entirely? Well, because it's temporary. It's not meant to be permanent. And so it kind of brings that out. And it does kind of invite you to ask, well, then what is permanent? What is going to come that will give us something that's not going to change? And and that's Jesus Christ, right? Who mm-hmm. is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, the one who changes not. Mm-hmm. Abide with me. That's right. And, and so there, I think that there's a, a way for us to really see that within that, that section of the daily offerings. Hmm. Let's keep reading here in the text. We're in Ezekiel 46, picking up again in verse 16. Thus says the Lord God, If the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. Then he brought me through the entrance, which was at the side of the gate, to the north row of the holy chambers for the priests. And behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. And he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering, in order not to bring them out into the outer court, and so transmit holiness to the people. Then he brought me out to the outer court, and led me around to the four corners of the court. And behold, in each corner of the court there was another court. In the four corners of the court were small courts, forty cubits long and thirty broad. The four were of the same size." On the inside, around each of the four courts, was a row of masonry, with hearths made at the bottom of the rows all around. Then he said to me, These are the kitchens, where those who minister at the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. That is the rest of the chapter. That was Ezekiel 46, verses 16 to 24. Pastor Preuss, the prince, again, is a central figure in verses 16 through 18, but now we're not talking so much about the worship life of the people. We're talking about inheritance and and land what's going on in verses 16 through 18 yeah we kind of have to backtrack a little bit and remember that uh in chapter 45 we hear and to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district and the property of the city alongside the holy district and the property of the city on the west and on the east corresponding in length to one of the tribal portions and extending from the western to the eastern boundary of the land It is to be his property in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. And so this double portion of land was was given to the prince, and he may bequeath the land in one of two ways, according to these verses 16 to 18 here in chapter 46. And the first is to give it to one of his sons, who would then give it to one of his sons and give it to one of his sons and on down the line. 
uh, in the succeeding generations. But the second one was uh, he could actually bequeath it to one of his servants, we're told. Uh, but again, that could only be temporary. It shall be until the year of liberty. We might, we'd say the, the year of jubilee, maybe. Um, then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. So the temporary bequeathing refers to Leviticus 25, when all ancestral property had to be returned to the family of its original owner. And we're told the, the reason for this inheritance law is that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. And it's a reminder to us that God does not want a scattered flock. We hear about that in chapter 34. We hear about that as, as Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd uh, and that there would be one flock, one shepherd. And so uh, the, this scattering of everything uh, is, is not what God wants for his people. He wants them all to be one. And, and that's what this whole section is, is telling us about, is that the prince is, is going to make sure that that happens. Now, this is so much different than the kings, too. I mean, we were talking about before about how the temple is so lively and being used. Well, so to hear the, uh, the land, you know, they, they, were they actually celebrating the year of Jubilee where, you know, on the 50th year, everybody's getting back what they had before. It goes back to the, the, the tribe. Uh, well, no, probably not. Just like they weren't doing all those things in the temple. And so here he's saying uh, there's not going to be a scattered people. There's going to be a, a united people, one people under under one shepherd. I'm trying to to put this together and to to see how this works for us as Christians. So it sounds like the the picture here then is that however the land gets used, and particularly with the prince's role in it, it's always going to come back to the people of God are here. This is where they live. They're living there with their God, which is unlike many examples in in the Old Testament. The one the one that comes to my mind is King Ahab in the northern kingdom where he takes the vineyard of Naboth for his own, and he wasn't to do that because it didn't belong to him. It was, it was sure. Naboth's. And, and so the prince is going to prove himself to be a ruler, unlike Ahab, who of course was a wicked king, but even better than any of the, the kings of Judah, some of whom were good, that, that the Lord is going to have for himself a people taken care of by this prince, and they're going to dwell, and I can't remember exactly where this comes, maybe it is the Ezekiel 34, they're going to dwell securely in this land, that their inheritance won't be lost. Someone's not going to come in and take it. One of the, you know, those uh, those no good princes, they're not going to steal it, but it's all going to be secure as the Lord had always intended it to be. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you think about the significance of the year of Jubilee, that that everything is given back and that there's something to look forward to in spite of all of the things that might have gone wrong. And so that they're all going to be dwelling back on their land and that this belongs to the people of God. It gives them a, a sense of security and a knowledge of, of, of God's providence in the midst of this land. Um, and it, it really brings to mind all of the promises of of the Old Testament too, even back to, to Abraham yeah. of, of promising that this, this is going to be yours. And I'm not going to go back on this. And we know that this is ultimately fulfillment fulfilled when the meek inherit the earth. Mm. Um, but uh, there is yeah a lot for them to uh, think upon here uh, as the people in exile, that they uh, will get back their land and that this is another hope for them. 
Well, and and then for us as Christians, uh, as as you were talking there, the, some of the words that came to mind in, in the in the three year lectionary, we heard this not that long ago in Mark chapter ten, after Jesus talks to the the rich young ruler who walks away sad, and then he has that conversation with his own disciples about the the how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, and, and Peter you know tells Jesus, well, hey, we we left everything and followed you. And, and Jesus says, uh, this is in Mark ten twenty nine and following, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. And, and he goes on, but I mean, it sounds like there's a, a, it's a similar idea. I've never really connected that with the year of Jubilee, but I wonder if there there is a bit of a connection there that the Lord, again, the inheritance that he has for his people is safe in him nothing's going to get in the way. Even if we lose something now in an earthly sense, he's going to give us everything in eternity. I don't know, maybe I'm drawing too many lines too quickly, but that was where my mind went. Yeah, I think that there's there's something to what you're saying. I mean, whenever we, we look at God giving back uh, his, his uh, what, what belongs to his people, um, we should remind ourselves of how he is going to give everything back to us too. Um, this world is ours. It, it, it belongs to the people of God. And I, I think that it's only appropriate for us to see that it's, it's being taken away from us in, in a way in that while we are pilgrims in this world, yet this world will be recreated mm. and it, it does belong to us as God's children and so it will always stay with his children, even if it goes off into the servants for a little while. He gives it to some of his servants for a little while. Yes, but it is still ours. And so I think that to really take this, sometimes we are shy to grasp our Lord's promises because we think they're too good for us. Well, but he wants them to be that good and he wants you to receive it. And he wants you to be overjoyed that that you will not be scattered forever. And instead, you will be brought back and, and all inherit this. Uh, as my children. Chapter 46 ends by returning a little bit to the the temple layout, the structures, and particularly the use of these structures. You called them kitchens earlier. Tell us about this last section of the text, verses 19 through 24, and what's going on there. Yeah, so there are kind of two sets of of kitchens. Uh, One is for the sacred, the other one is for the ordinary. Uh, And so you have one for the priests and, and one for the laity. And the design of the kitchens is not really so much as important here as is the function of each. So in the priests, they eat the sacrifices in their space in, in their capacity as priests. Uh, and they they do so as those who are, are holy then, right? And, and then so when it says they do so in order not to bring them out into the outer court and so transmit holiness to the people, well, the people are not uh, consecrated for the purposes that the priests are. And so uh, the holiness is actually dangerous if the people are not authorized to touch or use that which is holy. So that's why you have that that sacred uh, kitchen and that uh, eating uh, that's happening there with the priests. But then you have the other space. It's back in the outer court. And uh, there, those who minister at the temple are told to boil the sacrifices of the people. So this is the common uh, area and these sacrifices refer to the peace offerings again or those communion offerings um, and in these offerings some of the meat goes to the worshipers who eat it in the temple precincts so this section is confirming the lord's desire again to commune with his people and it's not just the priests who are doing this 
uh, in, in their capacity as priests, but also coming and, and giving these communion offerings so that the people might have something to eat as well. Uh, so, you know, confirming that the Lord desires to commune with his people and uh, that his desire then produces our desire to commune with him. I mean, he really does want to eat with us, eat with sinners, uh, as Jesus so explicitly uh, showed us. That's right. I mean, and I, I think you, you have to go from this text to the way that Jesus you know, practices table fellowship, the way that he does eat with sinners. And uh, what strikes me in, in this section is that it's a repeated phrase. We heard it back in chapter 44, that the Lord wants the priests to eat where they're going to eat in order not to transmit holiness to the people. In chapter 44, they were told to to make sure they didn't wear their priestly garments outside of, of the appropriate area for that same reason, so as not to transmit that holiness to the people. And and with that text, you know, I mean, you see how Jesus comes and, and fulfills it, you know, when when, for example, the woman with the issue of blood touches his clothes, holiness, cleanliness is transferred from Jesus to her. And and here with the matter of eating, I mean, I think that this passage here sheds light on what that means for the Lord to eat with sinners, because he he has come as the fullness of what, what we have a shadow of here. He's come as the fullness to transmit holiness to the people. And I mean, so I, I think we can certainly... I suppose it, and I, I don't mean this. I don't mean this, you know, in a in a small way. But you know, of course, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper here. <laughs> but I, but I also think, I mean, just some of the examples in the Gospels, particularly the one that comes to my mind, would be Zacchaeus. How how that that text, you know, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, "I have to eat at your house." And by the end of that text, he he says, "Today salvation has come to this house because because he's there eating." I mean, it's just what a what an amazing gift that the Lord wants to eat with His people. And in so doing, then he, in, in the person of Jesus, which is the fulfillment of this, he does transmit his holiness to us. Yeah, he does. And yeah, I mean, I, I think what you said about the Lord's Supper, well, I think that sometimes we jump to that right away and we <laughs> we we miss out on some of the other ways in which he does uh, come to, like a Zacchaeus. Another one is just when he's eating with these tax collectors or, you know, he's eating with these sinners. And, you know, think of all of Luke 15. We have those yeah. lost parables based on how the Lord actually wants to dine with his people. When when the prodigal son comes back, for example, what, what happens but that there is a, a great feast? And so while we certainly will relate this to the Lord's Supper and that we, we have uh, our Lord communing with us there in, in the most intimate of ways, uh, yet we, we also see that there are other ways in which he's done that in, in Scripture and it gives us great uh, joy, whether at the Lord's Supper or just in general, that our Lord does want to be with us. And he bids us to come to him and to find that rest to go kind of full circle with the Sabbath uh, that he alone can give. And so that he eats with sinners is a great comfort to us. And it's kind of the way this ends here in this this chapter is that uh, the Lord ultimately wants to bring us to that that feast, which will never end. And uh, that he transmits his holiness to us. He's done that in holy baptism, and he continues to do that in holy communion and his holy absolution and in, in his holy word. And so uh, may we continue to desire to eat with him and commune with him just as he so desires to do so with us. What strikes me about the Luke 15 passage that you brought up, and I'm glad you did, is because that, that whole conversation that Jesus has there where he tells those parables of the lost things is, is brought about because you've got the Pharisees who are upset 
that Jesus is is eating with them. And when you look at the way that that chapter goes from the what the parable of the lost sheep is first and then the lost coin and then the lost son or the and really two lost sons, the way that 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 parable of the lost sons ends is is that the father is outside of the party entreating his older son basically to come into the party. And it just I mean the the whole shape of that chapter then shows you just how much the Lord wants to to eat with his people because he's already eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And the ones who are upset about it, the Pharisees who who say, well, we're not going to join in that, he by the end of that chapter, he's he's entreating them, no, you need to come to this party too. You need to come and join in this meal too, because what's here is for you as well. I mean, just the I think sometimes we forget that with the the ministry of Jesus and eating to with the tax collectors and sinners. Well, he wants to eat with all of the people because they're all sinners. And even those who refuse, okay. you know, he's he's constantly calling them, you know, come to the feast, come to the feast, which of course brings to mind tons of other texts. We got about two minutes here to wrap things up this morning, Pastor Preuss, with Ezekiel 46 and, and the way that this comes to us as Christians today to, to point us to Jesus. Yeah, the way it points us to Jesus is to be reminded that the entire Old Testament is meant to point us to Jesus. And here we get a very uh, chuck full of symbolism in this section from Ezekiel in in chapters 40 to 48. And here in the New Temple, uh, we see the the Sabbath and new moon offerings. He's he's making all things new. And he he, uh, shows us that this Sabbath and new moon are just a shadow of things to come. Christ has fulfilled this. He is our Sabbath rest. And here in the Christian church, uh, we have uh, this prince, the prince of peace, who is in solidarity with us. He leads us in procession at all times. And he uh, prostrated himself uh, before the Lord uh, in his vicarious role here on earth for us. Uh, And we we see that uh, taking place here in, in the temple, in the gateway. And it's it's a beautiful way of showing us that our our Savior Jesus uh, has come into this world to be our our mediator, uh, first on the cross where He then once and for all shed His blood for our sins, and and then also since He has risen and ascended that He continues to be the mediator uh, who has already offered the sacrifice once and for all and continues to plead for us and to intercede for us above, so that as we we wait for this this land uh, that is going to be ours. Um, it is a, a good reminder to us as the princes gives this this land to his sons, and and we are the sons of God, and so we through Christ uh, uh, can be called the sons of God, and we can look forward to inherit that that great jubilee and that great year. And how do we look forward to that? But by having him eat with sinners, uh, he gives us his holiness and makes us perfect in his sight through the forgiveness of sins and. We eat with him now and we will eat with him forever as we cling by faith to him and and hope in him uh, until we see him face to face. Pastor Stephen Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa, helping us today with Ezekiel 46, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. The next two days here on Sharper Iron, there will be a couple of special Thanksgiving-related episodes as we as Christians give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. The series on Ezekiel will continue on Monday. I look forward to talking to you then. Have a blessed Thanksgiving.